What's up, everyone? I'm Adam, and you're listening to My Armor, a podcast that aims to tell the stories of people who have had to contend with injuries that have disrupted, stalled, or unfortunately ended their pursuits of success. I aim to tell these stories whilst honing in on factors such as motivation, self-doubt, fear of failure, and ultimately how to maintain resilience and grit in the face of adversity. Like there was a noticeable change in terms of my ability to, to first of all do work, but then do well in in the work. Um, so everything was going down the toilet. Like I was getting these headaches for they'd literally last for a week, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, and they were just horrible. Like they would, it was like my whole head was. It felt like it was getting crushed, and I couldn't concentrate, and it made me really irritable. And I remember that I'd go home. And then I'd like curl up into a ball and then like I'd just hide in the corner of the room and then I'd like, I'd try and sleep it off and I'd wake up and it'd be a little bit less painful. So then I kind of carried on with my day. And what a guest we have today. Our first guest epitomises focus, drive and determination. With a career that has taken him from professional rugby union with the Exeter Chiefs to the England Sevens programme until talent ID resulted in a transition to colder climates. This guest is currently a member of the GB bobsleigh team, who after funding was pulled by the national governing body, have continued to slide at World Cup events and to commence a campaign on the Winter Olympics next year through fundraising and private sponsorship. This team's drive to continue on in the face of adversity characterises the message I want to portray about Sam today. It is Sam's relentless drive to succeed that has led him to where he is today and will hopefully take him and the team to the podium in Beijing next year. Now, even that has its own story. Two weeks ago, Sam underwent surgery to repair a ruptured Achilles tendon. Let's get stuck in and find out what he's got to say. Sam, can you bring us up to date, mate? What has been going on over the past few, well, I guess three, four weeks now, mate? So I had a uh, ruptured Achilles. Um, I did that. So it was a two-man competition in a place called St. Moritz in Switzerland. Um, and I was warming up in a very cold garage because in a garage in a garage yeah so bobsleigh the warm-up facilities for most bobsleigh tracks is actually terrible it's normally a bit of tarmac or whatever but it's always outside okay Um, in St. Moritz because it tends to snow a lot you warm up inside this little garage which is right next to the um, the changing rooms but yeah it was like minus 25 degrees Celsius Jesus I was obviously freezing um, couldn't get warm and I was doing some resisted bounds which is like the penultimate thing that I do before um, I race and mate just to put it into perspective how yeah. far, far off the start gate were you at this point so how long before you were jumping at the top of the ice uh, so it's, it was 10 minutes before I went in which is 25 minutes before I race okay so, so 25 minutes before I race pretty imminent yeah um and yeah so i was just doing these resisted bounds as my second set i felt really good um then my foot hit some kind of i think it was a patch of black ice i'm not entirely sure but it kind of slipped jerked back and then that little extra tension my achilles just i felt it pop um and i knew straight away i was i was with greg um who you kind of know but yeah he's uh my teammate and he was the spare for the day um so he was helping me warm up um we heard it and i kind of looked at him and i was like you're gonna have to race mate my achilles gone 
And uh, you, like, you mentioned a pop and obviously you hear stories about kind of tendon injuries in terms of people can audibly hear it outside of outside of your own perceptions. Was that something that, that was consistent for you then? Was Greg able to hear that something had happened or was it just a, a sensation of a pop? Yeah, no, he heard it. I, I mean, I definitely heard it. Um, he heard it, but it was a mix of sounds for him. I think he heard the slipping and the pop. So he wasn't, he kind of thought that I just slipped and that I'd kind of pulled something. But um, I knew straight away it was like, uh, I think people describe it as a gunshot, yeah. but it, it wasn't like that. It sounded more like a pop, really loud pop. Um, wow. And I felt it kind of go up my leg or go up my calf. Um, and yeah, so I just knew, but it, it actually wasn't very painful. Um, do you think the minus 25 degrees has something to do with that? With the injury or the pain? Well, actually that's a very, that's a really good point. I, I was literally referencing the fact that you weren't in much pain at that point, but we can talk about the fact that it could have been the precursor to the injury as well. Um, no, I, I, the, I spoke to my surgeon and he said, um, that it's probably cause I severed the nerve. Yeah. So apparently if you partially rupture an Achilles, it's absolute agony. But if you do a full rupture, normally people don't feel it, um, according to him. So yeah, it just felt like a kick in the back of the leg. But And for anyone yeah. who is interested at this point in what um, what a severed Achilles looks like and specifically what Sam's severed Achilles look like, if you were to check out um, Injury Armour's Instagram page or I believe Sam, your Instagram page as well. Uh, yeah, I've, I've got it on there. Yeah, Professor Gordon McKay did an incredible video of Sam's Achilles um, mid-surgery, and effectively you can see how clean, a, how clean a cut basically Sam has to that Achilles at that point. So not for the faint-hearted, I would say. No, I, I actually, do you know, I really like, I prefaced it, and I was like, if you're squeamish, don't look at it. <laughs> I made sure before you swipe that there was something that said, don't look at it if you're going to freak out. <laughs> and still people messaged me, and they were like, that was so disgusting. Yeah, oh, you put that up, and I was like, I literally said it. What's wrong with you? Well, mate, mate, I just banged it straight up there as my first video. I thought it was quite on brand in the <laughs> clinic, and um, I actually had people message me that I think were quite annoyed that I actually put it up there. Really? Yeah, in, like as in, I think I disturbed their dinner or something. So that's what your yeah, ankle's okay. done to people. <laughs> I mean, that's their fault for going on Instagram <laughs> yeah, during you. dinner. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. So effectively. <laughs> Warming up before one of the World Cup rounds in San Marias yeah. caused you to have a complete rupture of your Achilles. Yeah. Um, talk to me about how that was feeling, mate, in terms of mentally at that stage, because it's been a pretty troubling season for you guys anyway, hasn't it? Yeah, so we've yeah we've had a lot of troubles. Um, so Brad, our pilot, he was injured for like the first half of the season pretty much. Um, so it meant that we missed out, on, I think um, it was six uh, races. Yeah. Um, and then just after Christmas, I actually had like a false positive. Uh, so I stayed out with Brad over Christmas because um, we weren't sure if the boys were going to be able to come back out Okay. Uh, because of like all the COVID stuff that was happening. Um, and so we stayed in Germany. And then just before we were leaving for Winterberg, which was the first race after Christmas, I got a false positive COVID test. Um, and I say false positive, it's because I did three other tests after and they're all negative. Wow. But, um, the local government guidelines meant that uh, I had to stay in quarantine for 10 days. So I <laughs> spent 10 days on my own. But then uh, the boys actually got to go out. So they went to Winterberg. Uh, Nick had a really serious hamstring tear yeah. um, in the two-man race, uh, which meant that, I mean, he's he's been out since then. Uh, he might be able to come back for the four-man. He's kind of unsure. 
So, um, yeah, the week after that was my race. So I tore my Achilles. So it's just been a, a really frustrating season. For yeah, us. and I think it'll be good to, we'll go into it a little bit later, but it'll be good to tap into a little bit more about the, the, the bigger troubles and I guess the, the challenges that you guys have overcome as a, as a wider team anyway on, on the build-up towards towards what will be the Olympics next year. That'll be quite interesting to tap into. Um, so, mate, that culminated in you two weeks ago yesterday having surgery yeah. in Scotland, didn't it? Uh, was it two weeks? No, it was a week ago. A week ago, sorry, mate. A week ago yesterday. Okay. A week, yeah. That's because I've just, I've, just, I've just started your programme and it is week two. So I've got, yeah. two, week, got two weeks on the brain. That's all right, mate. It's all all the days are kind of <laughs> folding into one for me. But um, yeah, so it was a week ago uh, yesterday. Yeah, like you said. Cool. And mate, we'll get into that in a little bit more detail, but I'd like to go right back to the beginning, if that's okay. Because for those of you that haven't followed your journey or kind of who are aware, I guess through my page as well, about about your your story, really, can we take it right back to the beginning? So I'd like to go back to young Sam, Let's talk about kind of early teens, mate. At that stage, what were your goals, mate? What were you What were you trying to achieve? Because I'm presuming you were pretty involved heavily in sport at that point as well. Uh, yeah, so I've got I've got two brothers. I've got uh, one much older brother, but I've got a younger brother um, who's a year. There's a year between us. Um, and we kind of grew up. We're very active. Uh, we always kind of beat each other up in the house, <laughs> caused havoc. Um, so I was born in Canada. Cool. Um, I started skating at a pretty young age, as you do, well, as all Canadians do. Um, and then I got straight into ice hockey. Um, and then when I was 10, I moved over to the UK. Amazing. Um, so it was my younger brother, myself, and my mum. Okay. Uh, and then we played football for a little bit, but it didn't. We were like angry little kids, and it wasn't because of anything bad that happened i don't know why but we were just hyper aggressive little kids that was a product of just having three brothers in a household i think so yeah i think we we're just always like super competitive and always just trying to outdo each other yeah um so then yeah we, we started playing rugby and then uh i think how old was i i would have been like 12 i think and so before that time there was rugby i'm guessing then wasn't massive in canada no no i i'd, I'd never even heard of it until um until I moved over, it was so where I'm from is Quebec, so that's on the east coast. Okay, and that's like hockey, like hockey is like a religion there. Okay, um, so everyone skates, everyone plays hockey. Like I've got, uh, one of my cousins plays professionally over in Sweden. No way. Um, and he's played in France as well. So it's it's a huge thing from or was a huge thing to my family. Um, so for us, rugby was never a thing. Okay, so then coming over to the UK, just. Talk to me about kind of your progression into kind of traditional rugby setups, mate, with regards to, um, I presume at that stage, already down in Exeter, was it? Uh, nope. So it was in Lincoln. Oh, wow. Um, so that's where we moved to originally. And uh, yeah, so we we got in the kind of, we played for Lincoln, which is our local club, um, and played mini rugby there. Uh, my mum's partner at the time coached us oh cool um, he was he was actually a good rugby player he played for the navy um and so we yeah so we kind of grew up i loved the sport because it was a place where i could take out all my aggression yeah. um, and justin was exactly the same so we played in the same team and he always played a year up it's fair to say that you're probably at that stage or i'm presuming even through um 
adulthood as well is that you were quite known for your abrasive nature of play is that fair uh yeah it was actually <laughs> i think this all originated because uh we used to play the madden games on the um <laughs> on the xbox and there was something that came out called the hit stick but it was where you could literally if you tap down on the right joystick yeah you'd like chop people and like in this game, you'd literally like absolutely melt people, <laughs> like chop them at the knees. So Justin and I used to play it. And my mum was like, okay, that's enough Xbox. So we used to go outside and literally run at each other and like, <laughs> do it to each other. Uh, and so like from then on, we just kind of, we started doing that in uh, in our own like rugby games. Um, okay. And then, yeah, Things are starting to make a lot of sense now, mate. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of where it all started. But the hit stick. The hit stick, and uh, yeah, so then it, it kind of started from there. But yeah, we've we've always been really abrasive. Class. And what what age were you when you got involved in um in kind of academy setups or chief setups or started playing rugby at a higher level? So Justin and I uh, did a trial. So Justin's my younger brother. Sorry, um, we did a trial for the Canadian the seventeen team. Okay. Um, he was a year younger. It was my year, and uh, we both made it. And we played over in the UK and it was something called the Millfield uh, Rugby Festival. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it exists anymore. I think okay. it's at another school. But um, it was like, so the way they did the age groups was slightly different in Canada. So our under 17 was like equivalent to England under 16. Um, so we played the A team. We played the Wales A team. We played the USA under 17 teams. And I think it was Portugal and there was a few other teams. Um it was just like a festival type thing, but um, there was a, a guy called Will Davis who was the uh, one of the coaches at Truro College, which is um, one of Exeter's academy schools yeah. uh, down in Cornwall. And uh, he saw us play, my brother and I, and he, he really liked the way we, we played. So, uh, yeah, the year after that, Justin and I moved to Truro um, on our own. This was actually mental. Cause what, so your mum, was your mum still in Lincoln? Yeah, so she stayed up there for the first year. Wow. Um, so we lived in like uh, a house because Drew College is like, it was, it's not a private school. It's like a, a normal college. Okay. Um, but they got us like a house and there's three of us living there. Another Canadian guy got picked up um, and we literally were like bachelors living in this house as like 16, 16. 17 year old. <laughs> it, was, it was mental. Like I... <laughs> I remember because we couldn't cook at the time. We were just like, I don't know, we doing whatever we wanted. So I made like boiled eggs every day and I'd have like 10 boiled eggs every day because that was all I knew how to make. Well, mate, we can put those 10 boiled eggs down to your athleticism. Yeah, well, why not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and then the, our grades kind of went down the toilet. So then my mum decided to come down because my, my stepdad at the time, he was working in Plymouth. Okay. So they were going to move down anyway. I'm with you. But, um, were you for that first year were you ready for that level of independence or did you find that quite difficult no way mate like 16 year old you've gone from living well with your mum doing everything for you and then yeah. to to like total independence yeah. uh, shopping for your own food yeah uh having to so i was doing my a levels at the time as well having to do that i just couldn't juggle it no so my kind of grades really suffered my rugby really suffered as well because i wasn't getting enough food Okay. I was like constantly starving. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was a bit of a disaster, but definitely a, a good lesson, I think, for all of us. And then, mate, bring us, bring us as a guest, take it right down to um, 
when you were kind of mixing it up within more more adult rugby, I guess, or uh, in the academy kind of at that level? Yeah, so then we were in the kind of junior academy at Exeter at that point. Um, and then that was the year Exeter got promoted to. So they were still in the championships in our first year yeah. and we got promoted to the premiership. So second year of A-levels uh, is when I started doing uh, men's rugby because we got selected for the A-team. Okay, um, still only 18 years old, yeah? I was 17, I think, for my first game, okay. um, playing in the back row. Justin was like, he would have been 16. 16 playing at A-league rugby, that's actually pretty That's bonkers, isn't it? Yeah. What, what position um, is Justin? Uh, he's a blindside flanker. Wow. At 16. Um, and were you were you pretty much kind of fully matured at that stage in terms of your size that you are now? Would you two have looked similar at 16, 17? Justin was like 90 kilos. I was maybe like 94 kilos. I was tiny. Um, <laughs> I remember my our first game was like the very first A-League game of the season against um, Bath Yeah. Uh, at the rec. Um, obviously, it's an A-League game, so no one was watching. But I just remember looking... Well, first of all, the players on our team were like huge, um, and then players on their team, and I was just so scared. <laughs> and I remember the second row—I can't remember who it was—but he got injured in like the first twenty minutes. So I was like a seventeen-year-old, like ninety-five kilos, tiny, and I got put straight into the row. Oh my gosh! Um, for sixty minutes, and I remember like from minute one, I was like hanging out, just like. <laughs> I couldn't keep up with the pace of the game. And I was like fit because yeah. I was, I mean, I've always been like good athletically, but I just couldn't keep up with the game. But um, I mean, you, you, your, your natural abrasive nature, were you, were you able to express that even at such a young age at that level or was that quite difficult? Um, actually, there was something that I think I'll always remember. One of the senior guys came up to Justin at the end of the game and he was like, you guys are crazy. <laughs> like, you just put your bodies on the line. And I think, in terms of like my rugby career, it's actually one of the most memorable moments. Was it, I remember. Do you remember who it was? I think it might have been uh, Chris Bentley. Okay, yeah. Um, I don't know if you know him. Yeah, it, 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 he does massive guy, isn't he? Huge guy, yeah. A lot of media so, stuff at Chief still. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I've kept in contact with him. He's a lovely bloke. But um, he kind of took Justin under our wing, but he was he, he said that, and I just remember thinking, wow, that's, that's, that, that means a lot. Yeah, that's that incredible. However, that's really quite fitting because you and Justin putting your bodies on the line yeah. in the, I guess, in the name of winning a rugby game, that didn't always go so well, did it? And let's talk about kind of you with regards to specifically your head, if that's okay, mate. Yeah. Um, so oh, we both, in the end, she ended up having a lot of head problems. But um, I was, like my our tackle technique wasn't really a technique, we just throw ourselves at like the spokes of course like, whenever we saw legs we just kind of dove into it because you learn how to tackle from madden i guess yeah exactly <laughs> we're good yeah it's literally a video game <laughs> worst place you could learn how to, to tackle but um yeah that kind of started when i was uh 18 so the year after um i left school um that's when we kind of joined the, the senior academy setup um and uh, I, I actually went really well. I had a good preseason. Um, and then uh, what happened? It was an A League game against Gloucester. Um, and I got a knee to the side of the head. It was okay. their number eight. I forget what his name was. But um, like my body went kind of limp. Um, 
and like I started spasming as well. Wow. Um, so actually, I think I've got the video somewhere, but it was, it was really scary. So but, that, um, was that the first sorry. major concussive episode that you, you can recall? Yeah, I think so. Because I, I remember at school, I was always, I wasn't the biggest kid, but I was always like the strongest kid. Yeah. So like nothing ever like, I didn't really take much damage from kids. Yeah. Um, but yeah, obviously at that level, the, the men are a lot, a lot bigger. For sure. Um, so yeah, that was my first serious concussion. But at the time as well, um, there wasn't much like stuff around head injuries. Yeah, that was my next question. Protocols. Mate. What that? Are we saying that was probably coming up to ten years ago now? Uh, yeah, it would have been a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah. So what what what, <laughs> what? 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 was your memory of kind of protocols like then, mate? And and this this is not to try and necessarily look back and try and. Uh, throw any slander on how things were done at all because it, it was what it was but but how, how how much were lads kind of encouraged to recognize the symptoms and and, and how was it there treated thereafter really i just it wasn't a thing really um i remember i failed Do you know those cog i think it's called the cog test Cogsport, yeah it's, yeah the cog sport thing so it's like for people who don't know it's a um it's like a computer game-based test that tests all your kind of different cognitive abilities mm. um and you, we did one at the start of um pre-season and then I, I did it again but i failed it okay um and i remember whoever it was uh i said like i i don't feel that bad and he was like oh you could have just failed it based on symptoms because i think you can fail a cog sport instantly if you just put symptoms okay um but yeah so that was he was like i'm sure you're fine um and then, so yeah, that entire rest of the season, I, I kept playing, but I was getting worse and worse, and like the kind of symptoms started getting really, really um, exaggerated. Mate, for people that aren't aware, can you just break down kind of the symptoms that you were feeling at that stage and the impact that was having on your professional kind of playing life and your um, and your home life as well? I guess. Yeah, like I think concussions is probably the biggest injury that affects your your home life, especially. Mm. Um, in the sense that like everything is affected from your mood to like like your temperament everything changes so I was studying um, at university at the time as well wow um, I was doing an engineering degree and uh, obviously it's my fresh year so it didn't really matter as long as I passed it but um, I just like there was a noticeable change in terms of my ability to to first of all do work but then do well in, in the work okay um, so everything was going down the toilet. Like I was getting these headaches for they'd l- literally last for a week, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, and they were just horrible. Like they would, it was like my whole head was. It felt like it was getting crushed, and I couldn't concentrate, and it made me really irritable. And I remember that I'd go home, and then I'd like curl up into a ball, and then like I'd just hide in the corner of the room, and then I'd like I'd try and sleep it off, and I'd wake up, and it'd be a little bit less painful. So then I kind of carried on with my day, but um, wow! I'll give you an example actually for like the mood stuff. But I was in a lecture once. Um, I can't remember what the lecture was, but I started crying. Um, and for those that kind of know me, I'm not particularly emotional. Okay. Especially in an engineering lecture. Oh mate, yeah, I'm but, sure uh, I'm pulling on too many strings. Yeah, no, that that was dry. Um, but yeah, I, I just started crying like uncontrollably, and I. I had no control over it and I had, I just didn't know what was happening. 
and I was so embarrassed as well like tears were just streaming down my face I had to walk out the lecture but that was like a really scary moment I just felt out of control at that point had you already accepted that you were struggling with some um ongoing concussion issues or, or was that the moment really that you think I need to probably be a bit more open and honest about this yeah so it was I think I finished that entire season and it was the next year it was after uh I did the uh, at the time it's called the JP Morgan sevens I don't know what it was but it's the premiership sevens um and I remember taking a high ball and then I think it was Matt Banahan absolutely smashed me um and then I was like knocked out and after that tournament I had a terrible tournament like the entire time I just felt like I was in a like a haze okay I know people with concussions they kind of describe it as a fog yeah it just felt like you weren't in your body for sure you were just kind of swimming in it but um yeah it was after that I was like okay something needs to change because everything's being affected I need help um and then that's when I kind of I missed that entire season I got diagnosed with post-concussion syndrome. I pretty much thought it was the end of my sporting career. I wasn't sure if I'd ever actually be able to kind of be normal again in terms of like get my memory back and be able to cognitively function as I used to function. How bad did it get, mate? Were you were you struggling to do basic things again? <laughs> yeah, it was it was horrible. Like uh, I couldn't remember anything. I couldn't. I was really. I got really. Um, I got really aggressive and. Um, and again, I mean, just, my understanding is that's not you at all. No, no, I'm like I'm a very chill. In rugby, I was always hyper aggressive, but like in general life, it was just I was a very calm guy. Like I'm very introverted, um, and people just I like, just snap instantly, and I was just I was a totally different person. Everything was just kind of it just went like horribly wrong. Um, what kind of support were you getting at that time? Um, at the time, obviously, I didn't know much about. Well, it's not obvious, but I, I didn't know much about head injuries, so I didn't know what was happening. Um, but once I kind of highlighted it, um, the doctor, the head doctor at Exeter Chiefs, is a guy called Adrian Harris. Mm. But he'd done a lot of work with concussions, so he was actually unbelievable. Yeah, like he was always there for me, and I'd like talk to him, and he'd he'd always put my mind at ease. Amazing. And he kind of set my not return to play, but return to that normal life. Yeah, and that's when you put it into perspective like that, that just highlights how serious an issue it is. And I know we don't spend too long talking about the, the severity and the, the, the seriousness of concussion because I think that's there's been enough said about it, but it's just so important that, that we can actually hear how much it does affect people or, or did affect people. And just, just, just for the sake that more evidence that we need to keep treating it as it's getting treated yeah uh, do you know what like I, I don't know if you've been watching kind of the news recently but the sports stuff specifically is there was this stuff about steve thompson okay um, the rugby world cup winning hooker yeah yeah he can't remember the world cup final he can't remember lifting anything and now he's at a point where i think he's getting like dementia symptoms and he's He's in his 40s, and there's Alex Popham, the Welsh, uh, yep. the old Welsh number eight. Yep. So actually, I grew up idolising him because I, I actually thought he was an unbelievable player, but now he's he's got early-onset dementia. I think he's in his late 40s. Um, and all these guys that have played through this kind of recent period of professional rugby where the players are so much bigger and there's a lot more ball and play, are all getting these horrific kind of, um, well, issues. 
from the playing days. Do you give that much thought? I think there's a chance that when I'm older, I might end up like that. Um, and it's scary, but I kind of, I'll think about it, I'll panic, and then I'll forget about it, and I'll move on with my life. Yeah. Because um, realistically, I can't do anything What can you do? It. Yeah. What can you do? And I guess I guess the crucial thing is, and um, your career took a bit of a change, didn't it? Yeah. And so, so well, I guess you minimised, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but in theory, you minimised the repeated head impacts that you were going to sustain. Yeah, I kind of, well, so I took that year out and then um, I came back into pre-season. Like, I can't remember what it was, but I had a really good, uh, it was in training, I made a break or something. And then that's when um, I think Ali Heifer, the, the backs coach at um, Exeter, he said, oh, you should try the wing. Um, and obviously I was fast enough because... I'm a good athlete and I was I had good agility and stuff so um, I decided to give it a go I thought for me it might elongate my career for sure but actually by that point I kind of lost that love for, for contact um, I used to I used to play it sounds a bit sadistic but I used to get this like burst of excitement whenever I used to get into like contact situations so whether it's hitting a ruck or making a tackle like it was just this pure like adrenaline filled like buzz yeah, yeah. um well you you grew, you grew up on that by the sounds of it that was your bread yeah. and butter yeah no, it's true it was, i just loved it I, d- I don't know why maybe we were kids but we just love the contact aspect of it would you have said um, that in general life you're a bit of an adrenaline junkie or not uh i used to hate roller coasters <laughs> I, of them. I, I mean I, I don't know if i'm an adrenaline junkie but I, are like I'm not back down from things. No, for sure. And the only reason I said that, mate, is that obviously you live for the collision. Potentially, outsiders, especially outsiders to rugby, would look at that and say, "There is no way I'm ever going to put myself in a position like that." You then transition, and we'll come on to this, but you transition to another sport that I would argue is probably one of the most petrifying-looking sports on the planet. Um, no, you're not wrong. And so there's certainly a pattern there, mate, where you seemingly live for the live for the chaos. Anyway, perhaps. I think it's just the case of like falling into these sports yeah. and then being good at it. Yeah. Um, it's not that I actually go out and seek the thrill. Um, so like with Bob, so I never thought that I would ever end up there, but yeah, I did just because I was physically suited to it. So what was the, tr- how talk to us a little bit mate, about how that transition occurred from, from rugby to bobsleigh, because I know there's a few bits in between. Yeah. So, it wasn't just like I went straight from rugby to bobsleigh. It was I. So this my so I, my last year at Exeter, um, I played really well. I was playing on the wing. Obviously, I made that transition, um, and I played really well in the A League. I think I scored the. It was like four games. And I think I scored six tries or something. I scored a hat trick in one of the games. Nice. But I was I was doing really well, and um, the England Sevens head coach Simon Amor he was kind of recruiting players um, and he spotted me um, and I wasn't getting any game time at Exeter because to see all the wingers there are unbelievable and I was just I wasn't a good winger I was just athletic enough to play there yeah if that makes any sense like, I didn't none of my skills like transferred well to there like no one wants a winger who loves hitting rocks and <laughs> smashing people 
it just doesn't work. Yeah. But I was just there because I was fast and big and agile. But um, he picked me up, and then I did a trial um, up in in London. So they're based at the Lensbury Hotel. I don't know if they still are, but it's in Twickenham. Um, and so I did really well in the trial, and then uh, I think it was a week later I was selected to the, the Hong Kong and Tokyo leg of the World Seven Series. Oh wow! Um, yeah, which was crazy because I was like, I literally just before that I had to take a month off of rugby because I had to catch up with my uni work. I was in my final year. So you were still so one year when you picked up by England Sevens. Yeah. So I was. <laughs> So after Christmas, I was I said, look, I'm I'm stopping rugby for now because I need to catch up with all my work because I was was taking well, obviously to try and train full time and then to do your studies and then like intensive course like engineering just isn't it's not easy. No, I can imagine. Um, and I had a lot of coursework based courses, um, so it meant a lot of work on the computers. Um, a lot of it was like, this is boring, so I won't go into detail, but it was like. Um, a lot of computer-based uh, modeling. So it would take hours to model this stuff and then hours to like for the model to go through. So it was just time-consuming. So I needed to stop. Yeah. Um, I did that. I literally got fat for a month. My like no, schedule got I refuse so weird. to believe that you got fat, mate. But Every time post-surgery, mate, I get so fat. I mean, if you ever meet the boys, I think they'll tell you because there was a time after I broke my shin... I went up to see some of the bobsled guys and they were just like, what has happened to you? <laughs> Got a little bit sloppy. Yeah, I mean, I was eating ice cream every night. I just didn't care at that point. Okay. Um, and I was sofa bound, so I was like, I just got like fat. I was bursting out of my chinos. It was disgusting. For anyone that's going through um, a rehab process at the moment, I can I can certainly say that's probably not the most conducive to recovery, but... I got told to eat a lot of calories. <laughs> that would help healing. Yeah. I think I took it a bit too literally. Man, that's all good. Um, but yeah. Uh, what happened? What were we talking about? So you're talking about this. Basically, your transition to sevens and the fact that you were you were at mid-university. Christmas, oh, yeah. I need to take a break. Yeah, sorry. So I took a break. Um, then uh, Ricky Pello, who's the skills coach at Exeter, he phoned me and he was like, look, the... Sevens coach, uh, Simon's been in contact with me. He really likes the look of you. He said, I actually think sevens is your sport because you're athletic and whatever, and it's it suits your skill set. He said, I think you should go for it because um, you're not going to get any chances here anyway. Okay. Um, so I went from like being desk bound for like six weeks or something, just doing coursework, to like having four weeks to get like England sevens fit, which is like it's on another level yeah, I mean, that was my next question so what what is the step up from being a league fit which is like kind of uh premiership rugby but kind of there is it fair if i say the second team yeah no it is the second, second team, team yeah. premiership rugby which is still needs to be obviously serious intensity what's that step up from there to international sevens so like to put it in perspective i was i don't know if i still have the record but i had the ast record at exeter okay um and if and people won't know what this is, but the AST is the anaerobic speed test, but it's the test that the RFU, um, it's an RFU fitness test essentially, and they do it at Exeter at the start of preseason, end of the preseason, to measure your fitness. Um, and I had it at the time, so I was technically, I'm putting that in inverted commas. But then I went to sevens, and I was like bottom of the food pile, really, not even close. Yeah, we did like a yaya test, and. 
the lowest level was like 20.5 and that was me and then the next lowest was like 21 something i was just like i was hanging on for dear life where did these guys it. come from were they had they been in a sevens program for a long time or had they been re- recently recruited as well uh there was a few new guys uh, so i came in with a guy called alex davis um he was actually selected for the Rio Olympics, but he got injured literally the week before the tournament. Uh, but he's actually a really lovely bloke. Um, and he's actually been through a lot of injuries as well. Oh, wow. Uh, but yeah, it was just the two of us. Um, I didn't trial with them, but we got a contract at the same time. So I got contracted the, the year after that. Um, and yeah, so it was it was a lot of senior guys there. Um Tom Mitchell was and is the captain. Guys like Dan Norton, who's been there for however many years. For sure. Uh, but there was the odd, there was the odd new guy. And every once in a while, there'd be a new trialist or a new signing. Um, what would you say your old, your sorry. highlight, mate, of your of your sevens career was? Uh, it's probably getting selected for my first tournament. Yeah. So I did. I think I did five tournaments of the eight i think at the time i think there were eight i think now there's like 10 um but yeah that, that getting selected for the very first thing so the first tournament was tokyo um which was amazing and my my mum came to watch which was also oh, like, really cool um and i got my first cap there um and then hong kong sevens like i don't know if for anyone that knows sevens it's like the biggest sevens tournament um and it's like packed out in this the Hong Kong stadium. It was it was awesome. And we got we got actually got to the final. So we we came third in my first tournament. We beat New Zealand. Wow. And then uh, in Hong Kong, uh, we got to the final, and we lost to New Zealand. Um, but they had some unbelievable players. They had like Akira Yuani, the big back row. Okay. Uh, he's an absolute freak. Uh, ben Lam, uh, who's that massive winger who plays for the Hurricanes. Um, Mason, yeah, what was the, the the sevens journey? What was the reason that kind of came to came to an end, or the transition out of sevens was? I my body just could not hack the training. Okay, um, I'd say that I was I'm pretty fast twitch, and I kind of struggle with uh, like capacity based work. As much as I like, I would train it. I would just never get better at it. So sevens obviously is a big running base for sure um, yeah sport and training a lot of it revolves around a lot of running obviously um like we used to do a lot of uh, mass intervals like okay. max, max aerobic speed yeah um and we do that like after like fitness sessions but um it just my body just didn't react well to it and how was it responding mate was it just general fatigue or were you starting to break down in specific areas i was like my cns couldn't hack it first of all like i was just that was burnt out, but then I started getting some some really bad injuries. Like I tore my internal oblique. I was like tearing like my groin. Wow! Broke my wrist. Like I just I just couldn't hack it. Um, yeah. And initially I could hack kind of keep up with it, but then eventually the training kind of took its toll, and then I just ended up uh, injured for like the majority of that. Um, my second season. And what was the setup like, mate? Was that was that fully professional athlete at that point, or were you still trying to juggle? Yeah, no, no. That so I so I joined the sevens program. I was balancing my studies and that. So what I do is uh, we train Monday, Tuesday, 
and then uh, Thursday, Friday. So I drive up uh, late Sunday night, <laughs> stay up at the hotel. I'd stay Monday, Tuesday, and then Tuesday I'd drive back straight to the library. I'd be doing my dissertation, then I'd go home, sleep. Wednesday I'd stay there, spend the day in the library, just do my dissertation, and then I'd drive up at like 5 a.m. on Thursday morning. So some serious for, uh, right? Yeah, it was massive commitment. And I, I mean, at my age now, I couldn't do it, but I was, I was young. I was like 22 or 23, so I could hack it. But um, yeah, so that was my first season there. Um, I caught the back end of that season. And then after that, I moved up to London. I lived literally like five minutes walk from uh, the Wimbledon tennis. Oh, man. A place called Southfields. It was really nice. Um, and yeah, so then that's that was like my first like fully devoted to rugby year. Did you get your, get your degree done? Completed? Yeah, got it done. Got the 2-1. Mate, that's seriously impressive. For for anyone out there who's juggling um, university studies and trying to make it as a professional athlete, I certainly take my hats off to you. And I'm, mate, the fact that you managed to complete it, that is unbelievable because you've got two conflicting lifestyles the way that I see it. You've got a lifestyle that prioritises socialising, uh, academic study, which ultimately is sitting, and then a lifestyle that is asking the bloody world of you, asking you to basically end yourself on a rugby pitch and then try and get up and train again within a few days. So I can't imagine that was easy. No, it was difficult. And the thing I hated as well is that I never got to in, like fully enjoy both worlds at the time. Do you regret that? I now? could never. No, I don't. Cause it's, it means I got, I got a lot of it, during my entire kind of uni or my degree, I got a lot done. So I'm really proud of that, but I, I really wish I kind of would have had a bit more time to socialize and go to socials and actually enjoy the university experience. Yeah. But I was just never able to because I was either training or studying and it was or competing. So it was kind of, it was really difficult. It's not possible. And, and also from, from experience of trying to treat these guys as well, it's quite possibly the, the worst environment or the worst balance of lifestyles to try and manage concussion. Yeah. is what can you do when you're told that you can't train because of concussion you then think oh well, cool i can crack on and i can try and work on some of my academic pursuits but sitting down in front of a computer asking yourself to focus on a book is quite possibly one of the worst things that you can possibly do for your head as well yeah uh, honestly that so i had to spend two weeks in a dark room and not do anything and I, by that i mean i wasn't allowed to read books wasn't allowed to do anything i just vegged in my bed and that was probably the toughest like mental test I've ever had. I can imagine. Um, but, I can imagine. Yeah. Speaking of tough mental tests, mate, mm -hmm. why did sevens come to an end? Uh, so I, I got injured a lot. Yeah. Um, and when did it come contract. to an end, mate? So the year we qualified for Rio. Yeah. Um, so that was 2014, 15. Um, and by then I was like set. I was like, I'm going to the Olympic Games. Like, I can do it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Simon had a saw a lot of potential in me when I joined and obviously that faded because I, I was never able to kind of string blocks together like training blocks um, but yeah he, he didn't renew my contract he essentially said to me your your body's not made for this like you, you can't do it um, and he said it's it's a shame but that's that is how it is so um hard pill to I did a, uh, I, it didn't come out of nowhere and I, I was kind of in agreement with him 
But also looking back, I think if training was more fitted towards the kind of athlete I am, as in that if I was allowed to sprint and then do really low level but long duration like aerobic work, I think I could have got through it. I think I could have actually really thrived in the sevens players, but it is hard in a team environment to kind of specially treat um, of players. Course. So. Of course. So one uh, door closes, another one opens. Yeah. So um, I Simon actually very kindly midway through that season, I had a broken wrist, and he's. Uh, I said, "Is there other Olympic? I want to explore other Olympic sports because I want to go to an Olympic." Um, I said, like, "Can I do this talent transfer day at the EIS?" Um, and that was a place called Bisham Abbey, which is in Marlow in Buckinghamshire. Uh, so I did the day. Um, I got. So what happens on these days? You do it's like a load of tests, essentially physical tests, and they measure like your anthropometric data, so how long your hands are, how tall you are, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then they kind of uh, pimp you out. That's probably the right term to like various different sports, <laughs> and whichever sport kind of wants you, you fit their profile. Yeah. And they kind of. Mate, just to, just to give some perspective on this profiling for people that are listening and maybe are, uh, are wondering kind of what you're talking about. I remember when I was at university, um, first year of uni, 2009, um, yeah. there were like cardboard cutouts of people that matched their talent ID program that were scattered all around the university. And I used to walk past these cardboard cutouts and be like, absolutely, do- like they were just huge compared to me. <laughs> and I, I would say for anyone who doesn't know me, I'm like an very average average size man but i just felt like an <laughs> absolute like it was just ridiculous mate so if you don't know sam kind of he definitely fits this kind of classic um talent id profiling in terms of size so i'm presuming mate bob slay did they mention rowing to you or was that out of the question i think it was bob slay and rowing yeah um, although like i thought i was tall at the time so i'm about six four um but those guys that i've I've kind of, so I've spent some time at the IOU, which is the intensive rehab unit at Bisham Abbey, and the rowers train there, but those guys are like so tall. I think it's like the shortest guys are like 6'6". Six, six, wow. so there's no way I could have made it in that sport. <laughs> no. um, and then, so, yeah, I did like a a week's trial um, with the Bobstay team. Um, well, I say a week, it was three days. Um, I did really well. The kind of coach there, a guy called Chris Woolley, said I had a lot of potential. Um, but it was too much of a risk for me at the time, financially. So I yeah. I signed another rugby contract. Um, and I spent a little bit of time there. So and, am, I I right, a, am I right in saying that the, a large influencing factor on that rugby contract was down to your brother? Yeah, that's right. So he was playing for Bedford in the championship. And that was probably my worst like financial deal. Um, and like in terms of like quality of club, that, that sounds harsh, but... Um, I had some really decent offers, but I picked that and I thought that it might help like reinvigorate my love for the game. Um, had you left, had you left sevens with more of a passion for the game of fifteens again, or was this just literally a stab in the dark at trying to reignite something? Yeah, it was a stab in the dark. I I hated rugby by that. Point. Really, you hated it. I hated it. That's not even an exaggeration. I despised it. So was was your hope then that you were just going to be able to recreate the days of being in Quebec with your brother, trying to smash things up? <laughs> yeah, I think it was something along those lines. I thought if I was playing with him, like 
maybe because as well but bedford play a really kind of expansive style of rugby it's it's actually as far as rugby goes it's a lot of fun okay um but yeah no it was i, I hate that year there i was actually i didn't know at the time but i was, I was massively depressed no, that's um, interesting. Like I had, yeah and it you say that like i sound really ungrateful because i was playing professional rugby with my brother like, literally my job was easy but i i hated it i would have rather been in an office job i think would I you yeah, I mean, I didn't like it. You say it sounds ungrateful, mate, but in the same breath, you said that you made the decision to go and put yourself in a job that you explicitly hated that that game. Yeah. So true. it doesn't massively surprise me that you said that. I mean, do you, do you, on reflection, can you think of the triggers? Would you feel that it purely was just the fact that you weren't enjoying rugby, or were there other things going on at that time? I, I think it was totally rugby based. I mean, I'd spent my entire childhood like idolizing this game and then working towards being the best I could be in this game. And for that to like all of a sudden not be a thing anymore, as in like me not enjoy it anymore. I just had no purpose in life. Were you doubting your, um, at that stage, mate, were you doubting your ability to succeed within the sport? Yeah. I like, it was a, obviously a step down from sevens in Exeter to get to Bedford. Um, and I, I know it was my choice, like I chose to go there. But I just, I wanted to be the best. Like I wanted to play for England and I wanted to be super successful in the game. Yeah, it was just, I, I was kind of, I just didn't, I didn't enjoy it. Like you can't, you can't play a professional sport and hate it at the same time. No. You just will never be good at it. Um. Was that as well? Like, was that influencing sorry. your um your work rate, mate, and your desire to 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 put everything into training and in recovering? Were you starting to slip in terms of some of the things that I would say? You're for anyone who knows you, and this is my reflection: is that you're incredibly motivated, diligent, and kind of knowledgeable about about your training methodologies and about how you should recover and about all of the all of the things that a lot of people take for granted. So did that slip when you lost the passion for the game? Uh, I was actually training for bobsleigh in my spare time. Were you? Like wow. I, yeah, in my drive, I was like doing loads of pliers and like trying to get out of those years of being a slow, like slow twitch rugby player. Um, and I was like spending all my time like learning about um, kind of training methods to be fast and more powerful. And so although yeah. you, because you, um, just to go back a second, you said at that stage you couldn't agree to a deal within bobsleigh because of the financial implications? Yeah, it wasn't so much a deal. I just didn't want to make the risk. I'm with you. With Olympic sports, like, if you don't perform, then you're cut. It's not like contracts. At the time, they were, U- were UK sport funded. So it's like if you meet a certain criteria, then you get put on funding. Um, but even then, like the funding is tiny, and that can get taken away at like any point in time. So for me, I just thought it was too much of a risk, um, especially since I spent all these years like playing rugby. Um, I just thought at the time it was a little bit of a it was too risky. So what was the reason you were training to become a good bobsleigh athlete then? It's a good question. I think I was hating life so much, so I just needed something else. It was a distraction. Uh, uh, a little distraction. I I also found the training really fun actually, and I I, I enjoy learning. Um, I like reading and to learn about all these different 
training methodologies and different ways of looking at stuff. I was, I was just fascinated by it. And you say that my work rate, did it change or whatever? Yes, it did. I remember my first game for Bedford was against Mosley at home. Um, and I scored a try in like the first minute. And uh, it was off 10. It was like a little inside ball. And I just cut straight through the fence. Okay. And, like I was through. And it was like, it was actually a really good try. But at that point, I put the ball down. And I was like, fuck, I'm bored. You felt nothing. Genuinely. I felt nothing and I was like I was bored. <laughs> I was in the middle of a game. Oh. I say middle, it was like the start of a game. Okay. And I was just like the rest of the game I was like I was totally switched off. I think I scored another try. It was like a similar situation. But I just remember going just the entirety of the game I just wasn't switched on. And I was just like I just I was over it. And uh, I remember Justin was watching cuz I think he was injured. I was like what did you think about my performance? And he was like you did some really good stuff, but also like I think for half the game you were like asleep. Wow! Um, I, I remember getting really offended. I was like, wow. <laughs> Mate, do you think do you think that was a a byproduct of you saying that you you were struggling with depression at that time? Uh, yes, I think so, and it, it's, it's probably a mix of things. Like I I didn't find it challenging, and I didn't. There was, yeah, I was depressed I, I was struggling to get up for games and stuff yeah. I was just I didn't find it like it just wasn't engaging for me yeah. and I, I think for me to be successful at anything I have to be massively engaged yeah and um if it isn't super difficult or like a challenge then I just switch off and okay that makes sense is what happened mate do you mind sharing a little bit you mentioned obviously that that phase you were you said on reflection kind of you realized that you were depressed but is that something that you are in control of now? Is it something that you still battle with now? And and if if not, mate, what were the steps that you took to to really allow yourself to pull yourself back into a good place? Um, I've come in and out of depression like, over the past few years, um, and I see. I don't know if it has anything to do with my head injuries, but I've also kind of been dealt, like you know, really tough deals. Yes. Um, but I think it was just a case of. I didn't know, so I, I didn't know at the time I was in depression. I was just moping around and just, I was just so low all the time. And I was I was dating a girl at the time. Um, I actually spoke to her recently and I, I kind of apologised to her because I was like, I'm, I didn't realise what was happening. And wow. I was so like disengaged with her and just like, I almost, I just didn't care about anything. And it must have been really difficult to be with someone like that. Um, but it was, yeah. I just eventually I got out of it because after I quit that year and I, I stepped away from rugby, like Bob say came up and it was this new exciting thing. And I was just like, I was loving life. I was like, this challenge was there in front of me. And it was this like almost insurmountable challenge. Cause for those that don't know, Bob says like the ultimate power sport, yeah. everyone that goes into it are like uh, generally track and field athletes because they're the like most fast twitch people, but you get the odd weightlifter, um, your, your team. Can you just break down the history of, of the lads that are in your team, their background? Uh, yeah, so actually it's it's a more mixed kind of background at the moment. Um, but historically it was all 100-meter um, sprinters, 200-meter sprinters, decathletes. Uh, the best guy ever is actually a girl called Bruce Tasker who retired just before um, the 2018 games. Sorry? Was that until last weekend? Yeah, until last weekend. That's a different story. He came, he came, 
we had loads of injuries. But he's a he's like the the British bobsleigh like greatest of all time. Really? Like he's the athlete. He was a four hundred meter runner. But he was running like 47 second 400s at like 98 kilos. I mean, I've only seen images, mate, but he seems like a, a big man. He's a like a mountain. He's 110 kilos, 6'4". Um, he cleaned, or well, I don't think I know, I've seen him clean 180. Um, he's like flying 30, is like ridiculously fast. It was like 279. For those that don't know, it's like, that's ridiculous. Um, he had a good 30 meters. He was plyometric. He was like a mix of everything. Okay. Um, and unbelievably technically good. Um, but yeah, for my team specifically, Brad, my pilot, he's a decathlete. Um, very, very powerful man. Um, Greg, who's the guy normally on the back of a four man, he is a sprinter, 100, 200. I thought, I thought he was a professional what biker. <laughs> yeah, he's also got ridiculous what bike. So you've got 2,780 watts or something? That's six seconds. Uh, yeah, there's six seconds, but I mean, he'll, he'll only do a few revolutions. Wow. Mate, where, so, where's your sitting at with that? Because I, I witnessed you do one maybe a year ago, and I genuinely thought the thing was about to take off. <laughs> I think, so, look, Greg did it in like, what's it called? Cycling shoes. And he actually went to cycling for a year. Okay. Well, I did... My best is in trainers, uh, just after training. I think it was like 2,580 or 90 or 2,600. Does, does, does this mean that you're laying it down to Greg right now that once your Achilles is better, you think with cycling shoes on, you can get it up? If I had cycling shoes and like just pre bobsleigh season shape, I think I could take it. It's on. Uh, it will set that as one of your on. one of your rehab goals. Oh, please. <laughs> I say that, he'll probably beat me. Yeah. So you've got Brad, you've got Greg, um, and then the rest of the team? So then the rest are actually military guys. Um, so we've got Nick uh, Gleason, who's a paratrooper. But so in uh, the military is actually a massive bobsled tradition. Um, so they actually have, they do inter services. So it's the Navy, RAF, uh, Army where they actually do bobsleigh competitions. Oh, wow. So they actually like churn out bobsleigh athletes all the time. And Nick came from that program. Like normally, and I don't mean to be disrespectful to them, but they're not very good. But Nick was very good. Um, and he's he's actually unbelievable. I think he's uh, Britain's youngest ever Olympic bobsledder. He went when he was, I think he was 21. Um, so he's, yeah, he's very good. He's unbelievably strong. Um, technically very good um and he's got a good jump on it i think his broad jump's like three meters 30 okay so for like a heavy guy that's very good um and then the two other guys are luke and taylor luke, uh, taylor's a royal marine and luke's a, a parachute regiment guy and, and are these guys all, all still serving or are they on like temporary <laughs> yeah they're all still serving so they actually get like let off to do bobsleigh wow um, incredible that's actually really great for them um so yeah so mate, so you you made this transition, I think, definitely for the for the good of your mental health by the sounds of it. Now, the yeah. thing that really fascinates me is that you, you've got a history of injuries. Let's be honest yeah. about that. A history of head injuries, mm -hmm. and the sport you chose to go back into was bobsleigh. Now, yeah, so what is the risk? I mean, let's be honest. My experience of bobsleigh, to be honest, before I met you, as I'm sure some people who are listening to this would agree. As cool embarrassing running. as it is, was cool runnings. Yeah. Now, 
that ends in a, in a, in a nasty way for the boys in, in cool running. So how often and how dangerous is the sport of bobsleigh? Uh, it's very dangerous if you've got a bad pilot. Um, you get the odd like freak crash. but So normally a bobsleigh competition, two or four man is two runs. So that's about two minutes in total of um, of action for each of those competitions. Okay. Now, like World Champs and Olympics is different. There's four runs and it's split over two days. So that's four minutes. But generally, it's like a really sh- short time. So some tracks are really rough. Places like Lake Placid, um, Oldenburg, if it's that's in Germany, if it's driven badly. Um, Winterberg, bottom of the track is like normally really rough. But generally, it's not too bad your head tends to be okay but um in terms of like crashes yeah there's some really bad ones I my first crash was like an oddity in the sense that normally it's like it's not too bad like you'll turn over if your like shoulder touches the ice then you might get some like ice burn which is like a friction burn essentially okay um but my first one I actually broke my thoracic I broke my back what I cracked a, a disc in my thoracic. It wasn't that bad, but I tell people I broke your first first crash. And how long had you been in the sport for? Uh, this was just over a year in. Okay, okay, mate. It seems to find yeah, you. Yeah, I know. It was a freak accident. <laughs> okay, where was that? That was in uh, Whistler, which is the fastest track in the world. Yeah, mate. What kind of speeds do you hit on that track? Uh, in a four man, it's like one fifty seven. I think is the record. Then in this kilometers an hour, sorry. In the two man, it's about 150, I think, or 152. I work in miles per hour. What's that? I don't know. I work in kilometers an hour. Oh, <laughs> you can what? Google it for you. I, we'll, do, we'll, do, we'll do a transition in a minute, but it sounds bloody fast anyway. Um, what's it like? So let's forget the crashes. What's it actually like being in that bobsleigh, hurtling down the track at 150, whatever you said, kilometers per hour? Uh, it's 96.93 miles an hour. Okay, so best, best part of 100 miles an hour. Yeah. Uh, what's it like when you crash or just... No, no, I, I just want to know, you got two or four guys tucked into this carbon or metal frame? Carbon fiber. Carbon fiber frame. Um, yeah. On a couple of, well, I guess just on a, cu- a couple of strips of metal effectively? Yeah, the frame is like aluminium. Yeah. But the, the shell is like carbon fiber. So what does it feel like, mate, being that like a tin of, a pack of sardines, mate, packed into a tin, going 100 miles down... down a nice track. Uh, it depends how well you load. Okay. Two, like, so two man is a really lonely thing because there's a lot of space between you and the pilot. Okay. And it's, I mean, there's only you, so it just feels really lonely. And like, that's two man crashes. I think it tends to be worse. Or I, I think they're worse because you're not with anyone. Okay. Um, in a four man, like if you've loaded well, because loading is a massive thing in it, and it can go wrong because you're as when you're pushing, it's the sled's going so fast. There's like the odd misstep or whatever. So if you get kind of out of place, then it could be very uncomfortable to ride down. But because um, you're like next to each other, you pretty much like uh, what's that word? The human centipede. Have you watched that? Oh movie? Christ! Yeah, it's like that. I mean, without the, I'm not literally down there, but you're pretty close to each other. Okay, so you're, so you're, um, you're nicely threaded into a into a pretty tight space. Yeah, it's real nice and cosy. So a four-man crash is like nice. I'm with you. Well, it's nicer. Yeah, no, I'm yeah, with you. Man crash, that lonely thing. And I guess the big thing I was asking about when it, when it came to what's it like being in the bobsleigh when you're not crashing, 
was really related to the corners because I, I mean I appreciate and I can probably understand that you're going through some serious G's on those corners. Yeah, I think like, it's like seven or eight G's in some of the high corners on the like high pressure corners. Okay. Uh, what's it like? It feels like your back. Yeah, I mean I've got like I've got degenerative discs in my like lumbar, and they really feel it around those corners. So you're talking physical pain when you're going down this track. Yeah, you're like literally getting crushed into the corner, and it's like it feels like because there's things called expansion gaps, or essentially like holes in the in the ice. So when the ice freezes, it kind of expands. So it just doesn't break the track. But those, when you're going fast and when they're really evident, normally they're filled in, but sometimes they're they're a little bit like holy. It's probably how I'd describe it. Okay. Like the little bump, it just feels like a really bad chiropractor is trying to like destroy your lumbar wow and so therefore a weekend of racing are you normally pretty sore come the end of it in a similar fashion to post rugby game saunas not at all because that's like let's say i did two and four run race that's four total minutes of of sliding and like most tracks are generally quite nice on some of the rougher tracks at lake placid you'd feel like you've been in a boxing fight with mike tyson but most of them are just fine okay it's more doms I can imagine. I can imagine. So, transition to bobsleigh successfully. Now, I don't want to. I don't want to take too much more of your time, mate. But can we just spend a really quick bit of time talking about the setup of what essentially is is your team at the moment? In the sense of you mentioned funding before from national governing bodies. Can yeah. you give people listening just a bit of an insight in terms of what has happened over the past? Am I right in saying year, eighteen months? Uh, yeah, two nearly two years now. But, um... So, uh, the way so UK Sport they they fund all Olympic sports, and it's that's done through the national lottery, and so we had funding after the 2014 games because the guys won an Olympic medal that they won a bronze, um, so they funded the entire program. I think they pumped five million or four and a half million into the program um, with the aim of us getting medals in uh, Pyeongchang, which is the 2018 games. Uh, we massively underperformed. I think our best result there was 12th. Um, so they gave us a year of something called transitionary funding, which is like they cut the funding in half. Um, and we had to win a medal essentially at the next World Champs. Okay. The guys came fourth, unfortunately, because um, I, I wasn't competing that year. No, I'm not saying they came fourth because I wasn't. No, 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 I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we lost our funding after that. And uh, so since then, we've had a private sponsor um, who likes to stay anonymous, but he's an unbelievable bloke in his family. Um, and he's, yeah, he funds us. It's incredible. Uh, essentially. Yeah. And basically, it's just to try and see a Team GB Bob somewhere as close as possible to the top step during for the next Olympics. Is that his primary aim or...? Uh, yeah, I think he really liked our stories and I think he, he probably likes us as individuals and I think he saw potential in us and for him, um, I think he thought it was quite a cool investment. Um, unfortunately, this year with all our injuries, I haven't seen much return for it. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think he sees a lot of potential in us. And is this the common pathway for uh, winter sports teams or winter sports athletes to take to have to go down that route of private funding or would most people at that point just throw the towel in and say, that's my experience with, with said sport done. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of depends. Like, our team is like, so our four-man team with like Nick, myself, Greg and Brad, like that's potential there to be absolutely world-class. Um, I'm talking like top three starts. Yeah. And then Brad's an unbelievable athlete, but also like a ridiculously good pilot. Like he came fourth at the world champs. So we were able to get funding because we're, we're actually good. It's not like we're competing, making numbers. No. We're, we're all very good athletes and there's a potential there to win a medal. Um, but yeah, we just kind of, we need things to align a little bit. Um, yeah. So I've kind of, I've digressed a bit, but in answer to your question, we were able to get funding cause we're good. I think if you're just competing, then you're going to obviously struggle to get funding. Yeah. Um, so I think kind of depends what the situation is. For sure. So bearing in mind the fact that you guys know your true potential, but yet you've been seriously, let's just say unlucky this season. Yeah. What are your thoughts, mate? And, and what are your honest feelings about the next year? personally and for the team um but no, i i genuinely i i massively believe in our team i we've got the equipment we've got a world-class four-man sled brad's a ridiculously good pilot um i just think if we get a little bit more luck um then i think things will go well like i don't I don't think it's anything that we've done wrong in our preparation. It just happened to be a really unfortunate year. Um, so I'm, I'm really confident. Like I'm really looking forward to next year because at the end of the day, like pre-Olympic year just doesn't matter, especially this pre-Olympic year because it doesn't count for like Olympic qualification standings or anything. So it's literally a nothing year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I've got full confidence in our team and I think I'm just really excited to get back with the boys and so from a personal level mate this will be kind of one of the last questions i need to ask you yeah you've got a bit of a of a journey to come i think that's fair to say yes you've been incredibly lucky and we can call this the first bit of the luck step with regards to the opportunity that you had with the surgery yeah for sure now we just got to put a bit of work in so from a personal level how are you feeling optimistic nervous kind of about the next step in terms of getting you back with the boys um to try and achieve that olympic dream that you mentioned was triggered when you're with the with the sevens team it's interesting i I've, the first week i was fine but then it kind of dawned on me as in the first week post injury yeah but now it's kind of dawned on me the kind of mountain i have to climb i was saying that like like you said like i've had well, I've had the best surgery I could possibly have for this injury and it went unbelievably well. Um, and I, like I am used, I'm not used to it, but I know how to fight back from very serious, what should be like career ending injuries and then performing off the back of it. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm anxious in the sense that I, I understand if things go wrong, that my chance to go to the games might, might be gone, but I think I'm always like pretty diligent with my approach to stuff. So, catastrophic injury but like you said an absolute freak accident or freak injury is there any point that you consider that right this is my time i need to hang up my boots hang up my spikes and call bob slayer day yeah i've actually gone through like a whole roller coaster of emotions since it happened um so when it happened i was like instantly like that's it career over i'm not getting to the games um and i just remember sitting in that garage waiting for the ambulance i was like this is it I wasn't even crying. I was just shell shocked. 
I just sat there like kind of limp and just I didn't I just I, d- I didn't really know what was happening and um so I went to the hospital got scanned I, obviously I knew it was a rupture but it got confirmed um meanwhile Greg and Brad were racing wow um and the moment they finished they came over to me they saw to the hospital and Greg literally spent so I I was useless at that point I'm gonna admit it like I just felt sorry for myself and I just thought it was over but Greg spent I think two or three hours on the phone like calling to try and find this surgeon because we knew because of the previous uh, Bob say I think he'd had surgery by him we knew but we knew people who had his contact okay um and then yeah he kind of he eventually found Gordon this was a Saturday as well I remember so like he had to find his like home phone. Um, no way. Yeah. So he called him on his mobile and uh, he spoke to him. I don't Did know. he answer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a lovely man. Like obviously to be to give me this operation entirely for free, you have to be pretty giving. Massive shout out to Professor McKay again then. Yeah, massive shout out. Um but yeah, he's he spoke to him and um then that was it. It set the wheels in motion and we were like I mean I remember I was crying and Greg like was put his hand on my shoulder I was <laughs> I was really really crying and a uh, mo- bit of a mix of emotions like I was kind of relieved but also like I just couldn't believe my luck um, yeah and then yeah that set the wheels in motion and it kind of got me back on track so I didn't pull myself out of it Greg did it so it, I mean, what does that is that pretty representative of what of what your current team is like yeah Massively. I mean, Greg and I joined the program at the same time. We've been close ever since. Like, we share a lot of common interests. and We spend a lot of time together outside of the sport. Um, him and I are like, particularly close. He and seems like always... a bit of a character. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, he's very extroverted and very extra. He's literally the opposite of me. <laughs> uh, but because I never speak, it's actually it's good for me to have a friend that talks. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, we've, we've been super close ever since. And, Amazing. He's obviously an amazing friend to me, so shout out to Greg as well. And so I guess the positive of pulling yourself out is that do you feel like you're in a position now, post-Achilles, that actually you're, you've managed to put yourself in a position where you are the best placed or better placed than you ever have been to be in a successful sled at an Olympic campaign? Yeah, I mean, I feel confident. Like if I can recover from this, I I have no doubts I will recover, but I'm, I'm, like, I'm just confident it'll be fine. Like the the thing is as well, and this is what I keep reminding myself. But rest is actually a really good thing. And for, for me, it's actually I find it really difficult to rest. Um, and so these forced surgeries and these injuries have actually forced me to rest for like extended periods of time. And I actually think that's made me more powerful off the back of it, because I think Amazing. there's a lot of studies that actually show that you get a lot of um, slow twitch to fast twitch conversion when you're sedentary. Wow. Um, and because I think they did studies on like sedentary people and athletes and sedentary people that actually have a really high percentage of um, fast twitch fibers. Um, and there's actually, a, there's a really interesting case study on Jonathan Edwards, the triple jumper. Yeah. For those who don't know him, he's got the world record in the triple jump, which I think he got in the early 90s. With Ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, outrageous. Um, I think he had like mono, some some kind of illness, like a year or two years before his um, his world record. And I think his coach attributes 
the world record from that extended rest period. Um, I'll try and find it for you. Mate, that's really fascinating. And I'm not going to profess to be able to rationalise what's going on there, but it's definitely sparked my interest. Yeah, I mean, there's there's studies that kind of back this kind of stuff up. Obviously, with the issue is with long periods of rest, you kind of lose coordinative ability and your CNS detrains. So there's like yeah. a, a balance. But I've always thought, and I think I've kind of been proven right from my comebacks from injury where I've come back and like been more powerful than I've ever been. And I, like, I'll give you an example. Like my broad jump this summer went up by 20 centimetres or 15 centimetres, which is a huge increase. Um, I, I like largely attribute that to, to long periods of rest. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Mate, that's incredible. The one thing that seems to be pretty consistent throughout this is is your self-belief, mate. Would you say that you attribute a lot of your perseverance down to that? Um, I think I'd be I'd persevere anyway, but I, I do massively believe in myself and I I know it because I tangibly got results. Like it's not based off um well, it's actually, yeah, it's, it's, it's based off actual information. Like I, I've got some records and some of the testing that we do and um, I've pushed uh, world-class times in two and former. Um, so I, like I know, I know I'm good. I just need to be healthy. Comes down to that luck again, doesn't it? Luck and I think, I think I'll probably change a few things in my approach this time. Um, I think it'll be fine. Like I literally just need to string together eight months. And I'll be fine, which I can do, touch wood. Mate, to be honest, I think this is the primary reason I wanted to get you on here because this whole podcast, to be fair, I wanted to get going to try and show people who were struggling with injuries, however big or small they may be, struggling with mental health struggles, however big or small they may feel, to show them that there are other people out there that have gone through injuries, struggled, but yet managed to pick themselves back up again and focus on the next goal. And for you, we can effectively look at your sporting career in, in three chapters, yeah. I would say. I don't want to oversimplify it, but the the first rugby career, let's say the 15s career, that was probably marred by by the head. The, the sevens, like you said, your body just wasn't necessarily coping with it. But now you've still managed to stay unbelievably resilient in the face of the adversities to push yourself wholeheartedly into another unbelievable challenge that will hopefully see you to an Olympics. Yeah. So, mate, thank you so much for for, for sharing your time with me mate. today and kind of sharing your story. Hopefully, it will serve as some benefit to help other people out there that may be struggling. Um, but, mate, would you be keen to come back on once we get you back and get you in that Olympic position? Yeah, mate. I've also got to shout you out because you've been unbelievable throughout this. Um, and, like, I really appreciate the help that you're you're giving me throughout this process. But yeah, I mean, in terms of other people, um, I understand what it's like to be injured and it's very frustrating. But I just feel like, I think the, the best advice I could probably give is just to take it a step at a time and to be diligent with your rehab and to listen to your physio um, or doctor, whatever it is. Perfect. And you'll be fine. But yeah, there we go. Perfect, mate. You better be listening. All right, mate. Thank you so much, man. Enjoy the rest of your evening.